God is at work through His local church and through the teaching of His Word. This morning on MyBridge Radio, we are pleased to share a favorite message from City Light Church in Omaha. Here's Pastor Gavin Johnson. Uh, I'm curious if any of you have ever had a date on the calendar that you were looking forward to such that every day leading up to that day uh, was informed by that day. You were preparing for it. You were anticipating it. There wasn't one day that you weren't thinking about that day, either on the forefront of your mind or in the back burner. It was there. This day is coming. Uh, I had one of those days. It was a number of years back. Uh, at the time, uh, much like I am now, I was in horrible shape. Uh, I had not exercised in a long time. And a friend called me and said, Gavin, what would you think about doing a triathlon with me? And it was Olympic distance triathlon in Kansas City, uh, Missouri. And now keep in mind, I am not, nor have I ever been much of an athlete. Okay, I played four years of high school golf. I did that because number one, I really uh, respect and appreciate the sport. Number two, it requires exactly zero running. Okay. So that's my kind of athletic endeavor. If you're out of breath, something has gone very wrong in the game of golf, okay? So I thrive as a human from a stationary posture. That is really where, where I flourish and do my best. But in a moment of lapse judgment and perhaps maybe a little peer pressure, I told him, yeah, sure, I'll do a triathlon with you. That sounds great. And so I committed to doing the triathlon that was exactly six months away. Uh, after the phone call, I got online and I signed up. I paid my registration for the August triathlon. And while I was on the website to register, I also took a look at the distances that I had just committed myself to. And uh, I found out I was going to swim for one mile, bike for 25 miles, and then run for six miles, all back to back. What kind of cruel and unusual punishment had I just signed myself up for? But from the moment I hit that submit button, I had exactly six months to get ready for that date. And guess what? For the next six months, there was not one day that I did not think about or prepare for or live in light of that day. Uh, the swim had me particularly freaked out. Uh, a mile may not seem like that far, uh, but try swimming so a mile sometime. It's a, it's a long ways to swim, uh, it, it, especially uh, when there's no side to hold on to. It kind of feels like you're running about 10 miles. In fact, the swim was in a lake, and it was an out and back. So you would swim to virtually the middle of the lake where there was a buoy, and then you would do a U-turn, and you would swim back. And uh, so I thought, what happens if I uh, get a side cramp or need to take a breather? There is no side of the pool. There is only 40 feet of cold, dark lake water to, uh, to say my final prayers in as I sink to the bottom. Uh, additionally, as you swim, if you've never seen these, uh, you're surrounded by about 100 other athletes that are in this open water with you. And it kind of reminds me, if you've ever been to like the... Uh, the monkey island at the Omaha uh, Henry Dorley Zoo where you feed the koi fish you throw like popcorn in and they all swim over each other that's what it feels like in the water if you sink to the bottom no one will see it or know until probably the next day and uh, so I have a, a strong desire to not drown in life that's one of my goals and so uh, every day for the next six months guess what I was in the water I was growing in my skill. I was anticipating it. It didn't matter if it was cold, if it was hot, if I was busy, uh, if I had other commitments. I found time and made it a priority to get in the water and get a swim in every day. And additionally, I ran. I bought some good, you know, Brooks running shoes, and I ran and I ran and I ran those shoes out. And every day I ran a few miles. Uh, and I bought a used road bike from somebody on Craig's, uh, Craigslist at the time and a little trainer, a little stationary setup, and I pedaled. Every day I found time to get on that bike and ride and ride and ride. There wasn't one day between signing up for that day and competing on that day that I didn't think about that day and prepare for that day. And when it came time for that day, everything went great. I didn't drown, as you can now tell. I uh, thought I was going to a few times. Uh, I'm pretty sure I placed dead last in the swim for my age group. 
uh, I finished like top five on the bike and right down the middle of the pack on the run. And so I finished uh, average for my age group, which was pretty good for an out-of-shape non-athlete. But it all went reasonably well, again, because once I signed up, I lived each day in light of that day. Now, the New Testament tells us that there's a much more significant day that's on the calendar for all of us. It's a day that should inform, give shape to, and define every single day of our lives leading up to that day. And that's the day that Jesus is coming back. The second coming of Jesus, by the way, is one of the most consistent and dominant themes of the entire New Testament. It's mentioned some 318 times in the 260 chapters between, Genesis, uh, I'm sorry, between Matthew and Revelation. That means that on average, the return of Jesus is mentioned once every 25 verses. So it seems to me that God has gone out of his way to put in front of us this day, that we would be prepared and ready uh, for the life uh, for Jesus coming back. Uh, that tells us a number of things. One thing it tells us is that human history is linear. It tells us that human history is purposeful, that all of this is headed somewhere to some great finality, and that big E on the eye chart of all of human history is that final consummate moment when Christ returns, the dead are going to rise, Jesus is going to bring his final judgment to each person, and he's going to initiate the life after this life for all of us. And uh, friends, we, we need to acknowledge this day is not metaphor or hyperbole. It's not figurative or hypothetical. It is a real day on our actual calendars, predetermined by God. And here's what I know with 100% certainty, that that day, we are one day closer to that day today than we were yesterday. It is coming. And in today's passage, Jesus is pointing to that day on the calendar, and he's teaching his disciples, hey, live each day in light of that day. And City Light, that's my prayer for us as well as we take a look at this passage. How many of you recognize it's very easy to get kind of sleepy in our Christian faith? But, I, but I'm praying instead that, that we would live each day with, with the end in mind, that the biggest thing on our calendar, the biggest thing on our hearts, the biggest thing uh, uh, populating our minds would be Jesus' return, that he would draw our attention and our anticipation to that day, and that we would learn to live each day in light of that day. So let's jump into the text, see what Jesus has for us. He's going to show us three things that we can do to live each day in light of that day. And so would we pay attention and would we heed what Jesus has to teach us? He's going to teach us that we need to wait expectantly, we need to prepare diligently, and we need to invest wisely for the day of Jesus' return. So here's the first one. Jesus teaches us that we need to wait eagerly for his return. Uh, look with me, starting in verse 35. He says again, this is Jesus, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. And so Jesus starts this teaching on his uh, final return with an illustration of a wedding. Uh, one thing that you need to know is that uh, weddings in this context were a little bit different than our weddings. In this context, they, they lasted much longer. Uh, I go to a lot of weddings, and I enjoy weddings, but I also have a goal to be home from the wedding four, four hours after I leave for the wedding. That's just a personal goal I have. And usually, you can get a lot done in four hours. You can go to the ceremony, you can go to the reception, uh, enjoy a nice meal, congratulate the couple, get home before the crazy uncle has too many adult pops and tries to do some break dancing on the floor, try to get my kids home before that moment. Uh, four hours is a typical Saturday afternoon at a wedding, but in this context, it was a, a much more grand and involved experience. Uh, a wedding had no definite end time. Uh, oftentimes, the wedding would just end when the food and the wine ran out. 
could uh, be as short as a day or two or as long as a week or maybe a little bit more, depending on how wealthy the host family was. And so the, the illustration here is that of servants. Uh, that his disciples were like servants, and our master has gone off to this wedding feast. And because of the context of how weddings happen, we don't know when he's coming back. Could be a two-day wedding. He might be there for eight days. And yet Jesus is saying the, 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 the servants need to be ready. Um, we don't know when he's going to come back. He says we need to stay dressed for action and keep our lamps burning. Uh, real quick, that phrase, to stay dressed for action, literally in the, in the Greek, is, it uh, reads to, to gird up our loins, to have our loins girded up. What is that? That's a weird sounding phrase. What does that mean? Well, the, the apparel of the day was to wear long flowing robes that went all the way down to the ground. It would keep you warm in the desert heat, it, or cool in the desert heat. It would keep you warm on the cool nights, but it was horrible to work out on. In. This is not like Lululemon yoga pants, okay? You can't just take off in a sprint. You're going to trip on your robe. So if you wanted to compete athletically or run or do something aggressive, you would pull up your robe, you would tuck it into your belt, exposing your legs. Now you're ready for action. In our day, it'd be like putting on a pair of running shorts. It communicates, I'm ready to move. I'm not going to get tripped up. If I need to move right now, I'm ready to move right now. I've stretched out, got my, uh, my running shoes on and uh, my running shorts on. And he says, you need to keep your lamps burning. What does that mean? That's not tough. It means keep the lights on. You need, you need to see what's around you. You need to have your shorts on, ready to run. You need to keep the lights on so you can see uh, what's going on so that when the master comes back, you don't need to say, hold on a second, I'm not ready. Let me tuck it in. Let me get the oil in the lamp. Let me get it on. He's saying we're gonna, we need to be ready at all times. And of course, this is a metaphor for us, for followers of Jesus, saying that uh, Jesus is coming back. We should be waiting for and anticipating that day. Now, how should we apply it thus far? Jesus is not saying that we should literally never turn down the lights and go to sleep at night, okay? You are not sinning against the Lord. Uh, if you relax, put on your sweatpants or your fat pants and turn on some football, turn out the lights and go to sleep at night. Rather, the lesson is that we should always be anticipating Jesus' return, that there is no off-season for the Christian life, that we don't know when Jesus is coming back, so we should always be anticipating it. The lights of our faith are on, the running shorts of living out our faith are on. We're not distracted living for the things of the world. And he's going to show us that it's a joyful, eager, anticipatory waiting for believers. Because when the master comes back from the wedding feast, he's actually coming home with great blessing for his servants. Look in verse 37. It says, blessed, that's key, are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he, that's the master, will dress himself for service and have them, that's the servants, recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes at the second watch or the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. So twice in these couple verses, uh, it says that the master is going to bless those who are waiting for him. That means that this wait is not a wait that's a, a fearful wait of judgment. Jesus isn't just coming with the hammer. Oh no, we need to be ready. Instead, it, it, we should be one of anticipation, of blessing, and of joy. When my kids were little, one of my absolute favorite moments of the day was when I got to come home from the office. And uh, I would come home, park the truck, walk up the driveway, and invariably at the front door waiting for me to greet me were smiling faces and big hugs and laughter. Every day I would come home, and, and it was the, the highlight of the day. They would come out, and I would just chuck them in the air as, as high as I could, and they would laugh, and they would giggle, and they would say, let's do it again. And it was just this blissful reunion, like I had been away at war for a year, uh, even though I'd only been gone, say, eight or nine hours. Uh, it was a joy-filled reunion. 
Well, City Light, that's the anticipation that we should have for Jesus' return. He's coming to bless us. For those who have trusted in him and are waiting for him, he's coming to bring great blessing. So I need to ask you, have you trusted in him? And are you waiting for him? It's super interesting in verse 37. It says that when the master comes back, he's not going to demand that his servants make him a homecoming meal while he reclines at the table. That would have been customary for the owner of a home at that day. I'm home. I'm hungry. I'm tired. I'm going to lay down. You guys make me a nice steak. He says he's going to flip the script. He's going to come back from the wedding. He's going to be in such a good mood. He's going to say, you know what? You guys have been waiting for me. Why don't you take a load off? Why don't, you, why don't I cook for you? Is that not a picture of the gospel? We have a God who serves his servants. There is no other religion like this. There is no other truth. What a God. We have a God who serves us. City Light, are you, are you waiting for that day? He teaches us we need to have the proverbial lights on of our faith. We need to have our proverbial running shorts on, ready for action, ready to serve Jesus. And we know that as soon as he comes back, guess what? He's going to serve us. It's going to be a meal like we could never imagine. So we trust him for salvation. We live each day in light of that day. But Jesus is going to teach us that we shouldn't just wait for that day. We should also be prepared for it. There's some work to do. So that's our second point, that we need to prepare diligently for Jesus' return. Pick it up in verse 39. Jesus says, But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So pay attention here. Jesus switches metaphors on us. You have to catch that or you're going to get lost a little bit. So there's a thief now. I thought the master was at a wedding, okay? Scene change, new metaphor completely. And the last one, the master's at a wedding. The servants are waiting. In this one, Jesus invites his, his disciples to imagine that they're the owner of a house and that a thief is going to come and break into the house. And the point that Jesus is driving home in this analogy or this metaphor is that none of us know when Jesus is coming back, so we should always be ready for it. The issue in the second metaphor is timing, timing. So let's just use Jesus' analogy. There's no need for me to create a new illustration. Let's imagine that you own a home. If you don't own a home, you do now in this illustration, okay? And I told you, I have it on good account that there is 100% certainty that your home will be broken into sometime in the next 18 months. I can't tell you what day it's going to be, there's 100% certainty that your home will be broken into. And on that day, they're going to come in, they're going to beat you up, they're going to tie you up, they're going to beat your dog, they're going to take everything that you have, and on their way out, they're going to spray paint a giant Iowa Hawkeyes logo on your garage door, okay? This is a bad situation. And uh, there, if there's a 100% chance that that day is coming in the next 18 months, what are you going to do? You're going to cower and just think, oh no, it's going to be a horrible day, I guess I just wait for it. No, you're going to be prepared for action. You don't know when the timing is, and so you're going to go, and you're going to get a state-of-the-art security system. You're going to go, and you're going to get some security cameras. Maybe you will upgrade your outdoor lighting. Maybe you will get an even bigger dog with bigger teeth and name him Cujo and keep him right by your side. Uh, Perhaps you'll have a loaded shotgun at bedside at all times. And then furthermore, you're not just going to prepare one time. Tonight, each day, you're going to Make sure that you're ready for that day. And so you're going to double check all the locks before you go to bed at night. You're going to keep the gun loaded. You're going to keep the batteries uh, in the alarm system up to date. You're going to get ready and you're going to stay ready. We shouldn't just be passively waiting, Jesus is saying. We know absolutely that he's coming back. We just don't know when. And so we don't just wait for it. We prepare for it. Just like I didn't just wait for the triathlon, I trained for it. I got ready. We don't just wait for a potential robber. 
we prepare for it. We get ready. And so we don't just wait for Jesus to return. We actually prepare for it. So we should ask the question, how do we prepare for Jesus's return? Well, I would propose four ways, at least, that we should be getting ready. First, should be the most obvious, if you have not trusted Jesus as your Savior, the most important thing you can do to get ready for that day is to trust him as Savior and Lord. Jesus' return is only going to be a blessing to those who have trusted in him. In the next and final section, we're going to see that his return means judgment for those who haven't trusted in him. And that's not going to be a good day for them. So if I could be a little bit crass and crude for the sake of brevity and time, I would just like to say hell is hot, forever is long, and our days are short, okay? So Jesus is telling us. So we need to make sure, am I right with God? How do I know if I'm right with God? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ? You have sins, God is holy. I have sins, God is holy. There is one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. No one comes to the Father except through him. The payment is very expensive, but it's been paid for all of us at the cross of Jesus Christ. The most important thing we can do is make sure we have given Jesus our sins, received his forgiveness, and committed our whole lives to him. So if you haven't done that, today is the day. The illustration here of a, of a, of a, of a thief coming uh, any night is that we should always be ready. In other words, don't delay. Don't wait until you're done with school to give your life to Jesus. Don't wait until you get married, until you have kids, until you make partner at the firm, until you get old to then turn to Jesus. Uh, friends, all we have guaranteed is today. He's coming like a thief in the night. It could be tonight. And so we need to be ready at all times. Trust him and give your life to him. Second, should be equally obvious, we prepare by telling others about Jesus. Right? This really brings into perspective all of our priorities in life. There is no one that you have ever met that isn't going to stand before Jesus on that last day. And so if you know Jesus and the way of salvation, then you have been sent by Jesus to tell others about Jesus. It's that simple. On this very thought, C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said, remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, in some degree, uh, we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another. All friendships, all loves, all play, all politics, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Wow. Who is it that Jesus has placed in your life to point them to him, to invite into your home, to your table, into your city group, to church on a Sunday, to have a conversation with Jesus about how do we prepare? We help others prepare. Number three, how else do we prepare? We prepare by extending forgiveness and mending relationships. Jesus almost always, uncomfortably so, in my reading of it, ties the forgiveness that we receive from the Father with the forgiveness that we extend to others. They go hand in hand, two sides of the same coin, as it were. And forgiveness is a huge deal to Jesus, and it should be a huge deal to us. And so we prepare for Jesus's return by actively seeking to forgive those who have sinned against us and do what Romans 12, 18 says, where it says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. We prepare by extending forgiveness, mending relationships. Number four, most broadly, we prepare for Jesus's return by faithfully serving him every day. We don't just trust him for salvation. We also lay down our whole lives for his service. 
There's a couple uh, that comes to our church, and I won't say their names. Uh, they model this so well, but they don't do it for attention or glory, but just to make much of Jesus. And they've filled their lives with serving Jesus and others, discipling international students, caring for people who are grieving, serving uh, whenever uh, is needed. And a couple months ago, I was officiating a funeral from a gentleman who uh, had died in our church, and they didn't know him, but of course they signed up to come and serve all the food at the funeral to serve this dear family. And uh, it just struck me like at every corner I see the same couple, and I see them only when there's need. You know, they're never in the spotlight, uh, they're never drawing attention, but anytime there's a need, they're there in the margins and they're serving. And I just wanted to affirm them, and so I said to the wife, I want to be like you when I grow up. You are always serving. What's, what's the key? What's the secret? Something has happened in your heart. And she said, Gavin, it's really simple. Literally, every morning I wake up and I pray, Jesus, give me an opportunity to serve you today. He said, Gavin, he gives me that opportunity every day. He always answers that prayer. What a posture. That is someone who is living this day in light of that day. So one, we eagerly anticipate Jesus' return, but we don't just wait. Number two, we prepare diligently for his return. Lastly, our passage teaches us to invest wisely for Jesus' return. Verse 41, Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? I love Peter. He's always like the brass tacks bottom line guy. Got it. We'll be ready. We're getting ready. Who else does this apply to? Us or everybody else? And Jesus answers his question with another metaphor. He doesn't directly answer Peter's questions, but, but indirectly he's going to answer uh, that this is for everyone. We should all be prepared. Verse 42. And the Lord said, that's to Peter, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Okay, so everyone pay attention. Jesus switches metaphors a third time, okay? First one, the disciples are like servants awaiting for the master to come back for a wedding feast. Second illustration, the disciples are like the owners of a home, and they know that a thief is coming, but they don't know when. And this third and final one, the disciples are like the managers of someone else's household. Okay, they've been put in charge. Uh, the, the owner owns that, the, the household, and he's got a large staff and a lot of resources. And the owner says, hey, you, you're going to be in charge of my house. You're going to be my manager. And uh, what is he teaching? He's teaching that all of us are that. For the disciples, we recognize this body is not my own. My house is not my own. My money does not belong to me. Everything I have belongs to God. This is our Father's world, we sing. Uh, and so everything that we have and hold on to, we are stewarding uh, that which belongs ultimately to God. So he says, who is the faithful and wise manager? He goes on, truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, this is the manager of the house, my master is delayed in coming. And he begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him into pieces and put him with the unfaithful. Ouch. And that servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what was deserving a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand more. Well, this sounds intense. This is a tough teaching. What is Jesus teaching us in this metaphor of the master of, or the manager of someone else's uh, estate? In the simplest of terms that I could think of, Jesus is teaching us that in the life to come, there are only two destinations 
but there is a variety of experiences uh, the individuals will experience in those two destinations. Okay? So first, the two destinations. For shorthand, as, as Christians, we refer to heaven and hell. Okay? What happens in the life to come? Well, most simply, we've got two options, folks. We'll be in heaven or we'll be in hell. And uh, for everyone, we're going to live forever. We'll either be fully forgiven in the presence of God, or we will be found guilty in our sins, separated from the presence of God, and facing eternal punishment for our sins. I say that heaven and hell are shorthand because for the believers especially, uh, there's a few more things that are going to happen. Okay? Immediately after we die, if we die before Jesus comes back, uh, 2 Corinthians 9 says that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That means we're going to have sort of this disembodied experience where our body will be cremated or buried in the ground, and yet we will no longer be with our body. We will be with the Lord. We'll be in a spiritual state and uh, the Bible calls this paradise or heaven. It says that then Jesus is going to come, and, and the dead are going to rise from the grave, and we're going to receive new resurrected bodies. And so we will be, again, embodied creatures. It says that Jesus is going to recreate the heavens and the earth, and we will live for all of eternity in an embodied state with the Lord and each other in a renewed heaven and a renewed earth, okay? Okay. So we're not going to spend eternity like floating on clouds uh, with naked angel babies playing harps like the cartoon show, okay? That's not it. Um, so so uh, we have two possible destinations when we die. To sum it up, when Jesus returns, uh, we're going to either be in glory or in judgment. And what determines our destination is 100% based on what Christ has done and how we have responded. So did we trust and receive him? We will go to heaven. Did we reject and deny him? We will go to hell. Then what Jesus is teaching here is that our individual experiences within those two destinations will somehow be varied. He uses the analogy of a master punishing his servant in verses 46 and 47. What's he talking about? He's talking about proportionate punishment for non-believers. That the punishment for those who didn't know God's will, so they didn't know the truth, no one shared the gospel with them, uh, they're still going to be held accountable for their sins. Romans 1 says that there is no excuse. We all have a general knowledge of God and his power and his uh, moral standard in the world and of sin. It says, but they will have a less severe experience than those who knew the truth and yet still rejected. So those, those people who heard the word of God, they heard the message of the gospel, and yet they still rejected Jesus, stiff-armed him all the way to death, that their judgment will be more severe because they knew the truth and yet rejected it. Similarly, Jesus is teaching us that for believers, in eternity, there will be a sort of proportional reward for the Christians. Our experience in heaven will be amazing for every believer, but there are going to be specific designated rewards and promotions, as it were, in glory. I realize this teaching isn't common. We don't commonly hear about it in popular Christian circles, but it's undeniably the teaching of the New Testament. In fact, in our passage just last week that uh, Chris taught on, Jesus taught us to store up treasures in heaven, not on earth. Jesus wouldn't teach us to store up treasures in heaven unless we could store up treasures in heaven, okay? Uh, there are five different New Testament passages refer, uh, that refer to believers getting crowns in heaven as rewards for righteous living and obedience on the earth. It's the consistent New Testament theme that we should be motivated for right living and God-honoring living by receiving eternal dividends and glory. So 
I have a background in accounting and finance. That was all my undergraduate uh, education. And uh, so as a father, I tried to instill early in my kids, teach them the power of like compound interest and long-term investing. And my oldest son in particular really took it to heart, Uh, maybe too much so. Uh, but he had started investing all of his birthday money uh, into stocks when he was about eight years old. Birthday money, Christmas money. He spends none of it. He invests all of it. And so uh, he has a, a long horizon uh, for those investments to grow. And uh, because of that, he's probably going to make an amazing return in the decades to come. Well, what Jesus is teaching us here is how to invest for the ultimate long term. We invest by investing in the kingdom. So my son might turn $500 of birthday and Christmas money into a couple million, but on his last day, he's going to take $0 with him. All that will seem very, uh, very, very small. Instead, if we want to invest very wisely, we will invest for eternity. We'll be generous toward others. We'll serve the least of these. We'll spend our energy and our days making much of Jesus and his church. Now, candidly, I don't know exactly what Jesus means by rewards in heaven, Uh, The New Testament is not abundantly clear on what that's going to look like. Here's what I do know. I know that in heaven there's no jealousy, there's no regret. So I do know that these varied rewards won't cause any less enjoyment for anyone, right? We're all going to be with Jesus, the source of true joy. Uh, We get a possible hint of perhaps what the rewards will look like or what we'll do with them in glory. In Revelation 4, uh, in, in verse 10, it talks about the elders... They're going to come before Jesus, and they're going to cast their crowns before his uh, feet. I think there's a whole Christian band named Casting Crowns. It's for that moment. Whatever reward we get, it all goes to Jesus in worship. Uh, So maybe our rewards are just more means to worship Jesus with. But whatever they are, Jesus is teaching us to invest wisely for them. To live this day, not just chasing a bigger house, the next promotion, the larger 401k, or investing for retirement, but investing for eternity giving our time, money, effort, energy, resources, heart to the service of Jesus and the advancement of his gospel. So I just would ask you, are you ready for that day? It could be tonight, guys. It could be tonight. It may not be in our lifetime, but I know we're one day closer today than we were yesterday. And so I need to implore you, are you ready? What's one thing that you can do today or this week to be ready for that day? By way of ending, let me just remind us of the good news of the gospel. We can invest for heavenly returns but we can never buy or earn our way in because Jesus has already done that for us. Friends, Jesus loves you. He loves you so much that he died for you. And he is now showing you how to be prepared because he loves you for that day when he's coming back for great blessing for those who have loved and trusted in him who are ready for his return. Thank you for joining us this morning for a favorite message from Pastor Gavin Johnson of City Light Omaha. If you'd like to hear this message again or more like it, check out Heard On Air on the MyBridge Radio app or online at mybridgeradio.net.